Well, the most important thing that you're going to do today or any day of your life is to pick up the Bible, which is the very Word of God, open it, read it and study it, hear it preached, and apply it to your heart and obey it. Most important possession you have next to your salvation itself is this precious Word of God. So take your Bible, if you will, or the church Bible provided there, and turn with us to Ephesians chapter 2. Just this morning, as I was making my way from the Sunday school hour down the hall, I was joined by a brother who's here today, part of our fellowship, who gave me a good handshake, and he said to me something along these lines, I want to thank you, Pastor, these sermons are helping me, and I want to tell you, we all need to hear restatements, in so many words he was saying, of the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he added these words, which in fact have been the concern and burden of my heart in my most recent years of ministry. He made a general statement, and I had to say the amen, even though it's not the happiest comment one could hear, and that is, this generation in too many places, among too many people, and so many who believe they're Christians really don't understand the gospel. The gospel message itself has been clouded. And the gospel message itself in every generation is at a certain risk of being lost altogether, even among the most religious of people who would find themselves in a church every Lord's Day. That is the burden of the word of the Lord in these days. In this brief series of sermons. We're not going to be long at this, but what we're doing, as you know, if you've been here, is recounting or restating what I've called rock-solid truth for these trembling times in which we lived. Now, if I asked any one of you to give me, maybe I'd even give you this little bit of a hint, if I said, can you state to me, which would be more important, I suppose, for us to state to a neighbor, or a family member outside of Christ, can you give me in a nutshell, can you say in a nutshell, concisely what is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? I would suggest that probably many of you would have no problem and you'd say, I know what the gospel is in a nutshell, and here it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And how many of you would say, Amen? I would. Did anybody say Amen? amen. John 3.16, it hardly gets much better than that. But at the same time, I want to say, John 3.16 doesn't say it all. And if our comprehension of the gospel is limited to only a few lines in Scripture, then you tell me why are there 66 books of the Bible in so many pages? So the theologian in me would want to say, if someone were to ask, can you give me the gospel in a nutshell... I might give them John 3.16, but then invite them to sit down while we read every page, every chapter, every verse of Paul's great manifesto, the book of Romans. 
not sure how many converts I might get at the end of the day if I tried to do that. In other words, the whole book of Romans, for example, is an exposition of what John meant when he wrote the third chapter in the 16th verse. In fact, for every true believer, the gospel itself is such a message of incredible depth Paul would say in one place that he would pray that we could know something about how high this truth is, how far and wide it reaches, how deep it is. And so we give ourselves a lifetime of delving in and comprehending more and glorying in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It, in a certain sense, could never be reduced to just a few lines or a few words. In fact, it's why I believe God's word is established forever in heaven. Somehow I think one of the occupations we'll have in that glory to come is that the word of God will still be there. It's just that we'll have minds that are so far more capable of understanding what was there. In fact, one of my fears is that after 30-some years of preaching, I may stand before the Lord someday, and he's going to say, Jim, you had all those years with all those people. How come you only scratched the surface? It'll probably be. Well, if the Lord were to say it, it would be a right judgment. Well, we've studied the book of Romans in this church. It took three years to do. And this morning, we only have a little bit of time, and we're looking at kind of an overview. So I didn't have you turn to the book of Romans, which really is the Magna Carta of the gospel, but to what I think is a portion of Scripture that is as concentrated and glorious as the words of John 3.16, except that there's a few more words, because we're going to be reading together now in the second chapter of Paul's epistle, to the Ephesians, verses 1 through 10. But in these 10 verses is an undiluted concentration of the truth that is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It begins with our need for the gospel. You'll see it in verse 1, and what a need it is. Well, let me just read along as you follow. Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You realize in these first few words alone, in these first three verses, you have the the foundation for that wonderful hymn that, yes, I did request this week that Brother Bob would sing to us. Thanks to Calvary, there's something very different than where we were. And the grace of God in the gospel begins with these words in verse 4. But God. You see where we started now? Don't forget. You were all dead. Spiritually, D-O-A. But, but God. Being rich in mercy... 
because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. So we were looking at each line and we're not going to be able to do that. But if I did pause here and I'd say, when did God first begin to love you in a redeeming way? This text says it is even when we were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And it is as though the apostle is concerned that in the generations to come, or maybe just during his day, that the church would somehow ever lose sight of a gospel of grace. He restates it again at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And that not of yourselves. It couldn't be because he started this work of redemption, remember, while we were already dead in our trespasses and sins. So this grace that brings faith and salvation, verse 8 at the end says clearly, it is the gift. It is the gift of God. And if it is that, it could never, ever, ever, ever be what he says in verse 9. It could not be ever as a result of works, that is, the sinner's works. Because it is God at work. And it's designed that way. He says, so that no one may boast. Now, let me, let's hear it again. You never, ever, ever have a reason to brag about the fact that you're a Christian <laughs> to anyone. We're all just beggars, as someone once said, telling other beggars where to find that living bread that we sang about this morning. No one may boast. So how do we become this Christian? How, how is it that we are where we are? How is it that many of you have walked with the Lord and, and lived fruitful lives for God's honor? Well, verse 10 sums it up. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let's pray again, and then we'll unfold the next portion of this series. Oh, God, that I had a thousand tongues to stand before your people this morning and expound this the infinite wonders of your grace. Oh, that I could lead us, my own soul, into deeper, more sincere worship of of the great Redeemer's praise so that we could name the glories of our God and King with each of us being a triumph of His grace. So may the words of my mouth The meditation of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. Assist us to proclaim and possess the honors of your name. 
We ask by him who himself is full of grace and truth. Amen. And amen. Well, I began by expressing the burden of this five-part series uh, that we've been in. This is the third of those parts. And by the way, CD recordings of the previous two are available free of charge in the reception area there for those of you just coming back and now meet us in the middle of this study, which we've entitled Rock Solid Truth for Trembling Times. Uh, If you've been here, and if not, this will bring you up to date with us. We have borrowed the five great solaces of the 16th century Great Reformation. The gospel had, in fact, all but been lost in that 16th century of time. And many of you do know a little church history. And just last Lord's Day, in a special way, we even remembered and commemorated Reformation Day, marking that day in October, uh, way back when Martin Luther nailed his confession of faith to the chapel door in Wittenberg, Germany. And the world was transformed then, and it continues to stand upon these five statements of truth, these five solaces. Just a moment of review. When we began two weeks ago, we looked at the first of the great statements of faith, And we were even borrowing the Latin sort of as a fun way of remembering these two phrases or these phrases. Sola scriptura, they said in Luther's day. Scripture alone. Scripture alone. Then last Lord's Day, as we progressed through the five, we came to the second. And the message was solus Christos, or that is... That salvation comes through Christ alone. We saw how in Luther's day, salvation came by way of the church. Salvation had to come by way of an earthly priest. Worst of all, salvation in Luther's day was in the hand of the Pope to give or withhold or withdraw. There was no assurance of true salvation in Luther's day. Until the cry, Solus Christus, went up. And the message was restored that there is only one mediator between God and sinner, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. It is indeed a glorious truth and an important part of the gospel of grace. Today we're looking at this wonderful truth of salvation, that it comes sola gratia. Gratia, the Latin for grace. By grace alone. It would be hard to believe that anyone here could argue with that, with the scriptures that we just read together. Verse 5 in Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And then the qualifier that says it's never of yourself, it's not a result of works, and it is in fact the very gift of God. It's hard to believe there could have been a Bible in Martin Luther's day or hopefully in the Pope's study and they would miss this great doctrine that salvation comes only one way and that is by grace alone. And then uh, if you'll be with us the next two weeks, we'll cover the last of two of the five, two more expositions. Sola fide, next Lord's Day, Lord willing, faith alone And then the four are summed up in the last great phrase of these five solaces. Soli 
Deo Gloria. I wish I could sing in Italian. I'd break forth at this point. Glorify God. To God alone be the glory. Scripture alone. Christ alone. Grace alone. Faith alone. To God be the glory alone. And until you can articulate, at least in your own heart, how firmly you hold this as a conviction, then you too will lack the kind of assurance you need and that God wants you to have. And until you do, well, we just can't be the most effective witness to the true gospel. Or as my brother said this morning, we're losing it in our day, as he has listened to so many. Now, let me dwell on that. Uh, well, it is kind of a negative point, and that is the the condition of things today when it comes to the general proclamation of a gospel so specifically defined in these five solaces. Just this morning, I decided to bring this into the pulpit with me. Uh, One person, very insightful, has summarized what uh, the gospel has become to too many at this present hour. I thought it so insightful that I would take a moment to share it. This would be contrary to Luther's 95 thesis and statement of truth in the day of Reformation. This would kind of be what people would want to nail to their door today if you ask them, well, what's the gospel to you and what do you believe? Listen to what what, uh, is detailed here. They believe this far too many. A God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Most professing believers in pews today would say, well, that's a true statement. A God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. That's a comforting truth. And by the way, it is true. It's just not the gospel yet. The second statement of belief would go something like this. This is what people conclude attending far too many churches. God wants people... To be good, nice, fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Well, I'm sure that God does want us to be nice people. I think that aligning ourselves with the moral code of the Ten Commandments would make us better neighbors one to the other. But it is not the gospel. Third statement might go something like this. Having listened to many a sermon... Not mine, I hope. (laughs) That the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good, if not better, about oneself. God does not need to be, this would be another statement of current ideas. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem or meet me at a point of crisis. The last of the statements, I fear, is the conclusion many draw from a moralism today that is far from the gospel. The statement is, good people go to heaven when they die. But that's not the gospel. And I have to say that much of my passion for these statements of faith we're looking at grow out of a great concern that the church of Jesus Christ in this 21st century would not drift or continue to drift 
or be led away from these foundational doctrines as was the case in the years and years prior to the Reformation. In other words, folks, truth matters. And the truths represented by these five statements, I must tell you, are non-negotiable. They must never be surrendered by the influences of our modern culture. I'm grateful that there are many voices, not just one. There are many, and there have been for some years now, uh, voices crying in the wilderness of all this confusion about the gospel who are calling us back to the same principles that Luther and others did before us. As far back in 1996, 1996, not so long ago, I mentioned this, I believe, in my first message on this series. I was privileged to be part of a group of pastors who put together something called the Cambridge Declaration of Faith, sort of like Luther's 95 Thesis for a modern day when they gathered. And they made some statements. They made some conclusions about what the Bible actually teaches, which is what we're seeking to do here. As part of the document, which we all signed on to, there was this sentence, quote, God's grace in Christ is not merely necessary, but is the soul, there's that solo, the sole efficient cause of salvation. If you ask the question, how does a dead, in trespasses, sinner ever come to be a Christian? The answer is, by grace. That's not enough. By grace and by grace alone. Part of their confession read, we confess that human beings are born spiritually dead. Sinners aren't just sick and can be revived by other Christians. All are dead in trespasses and sin. We confess that human beings are born spiritually dead and are incapable even of cooperating with regenerating grace. The other week I was telling some of you some of my stories about the days in the medical field when I was an emergency room technician working the graveyard ship. One of my jobs was to put a nice big tag with someone's name on it, tie it on a toe, and carry that person to the morgue. There was no treatment that we could give. They were beyond resuscitation. In those days, we called it a DOA. There was only one thing we could do in the emergency room. It happened to be my job. Take off their shoe and sock, tag their toe, and wheel them down to the morgue, which I did far too many times. We confess that human beings are born spiritually dead. We confess that because that's what Paul wrote here in Ephesians 2. And a dead man is incapable even of cooperating. Not one of those corpses ever helped me get their own body from the stretcher onto the slab in the refrigerator. It was what I would call dead weight. And be literally correct. What I liked about the Cambridge Declaration, and it still stands today, and I refer back to it many times in the last ten years I've been here, they make certain affirmations 
and then certain denials. We affirm certain things that be true, but it's just as important to say, and there are certain things that aren't true, and we need to say that they're not true. Let me give you an affirmation in denial as relates to the doctrine that we're looking at this morning, solo gratia, by grace alone. Here's what they wrote. We reaffirm, because it came out of the Reformation and from the Bible, that in salvation we are rescued from God's wrath by His grace alone. It is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to life and brings us to Christ by releasing us from bondage to sin and raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life. That was what they affirm, and I affirm it because the scriptures affirm it. They also wrote a denial. We deny, they said, that salvation in any sense, in any sense, is a human work. That's why we say sola gratia, grace and grace alone. And for our day, they added this further to the denial. Human methods, techniques or strategies by themselves cannot accomplish this transformation. Faith is not produced by our unregenerated human nature. Now that's a watershed issue for many Christians today who do at least give themselves to a study of God's word. How much grace and how much is my responsibility to save myself? My conviction is the scriptures are abundantly clear and that is that God is the author of salvation from Alpha to Omega, from beginning to end, and that a dead man can do nothing, but God's grace can do it all. So we are looking at this matter of sola gratia by grace alone. I think there's no more important issue in all of life than how you answer the question, how is a sinner saved from the wrath to come? Did you notice when I gave you that modern-day confession of faith? with no gospel in it at all. And one of the reasons we know there is no gospel in it at all that many would call a gospel is because they don't dare talk about the fact that God would somehow come and ever judge us. Or that he is a God of holy indignation against the sins of people everywhere and that he will hold them accountable. Or that he is a God of holy wrath, but he is. And any understanding of a gospel of grace that does not address the problem of sin and the wrath of God resting on sinners, John chapter 3 and verse 36, is not a gospel at all. I want to give you a a brief uh, outline. I know that probably two or three of you take notes from time to time. You'd like to do that. One of the ways we can look at these next ten verses and do it rather readily in, in less time would be if I give you some hooks to hang an outline of these 10 verses on. So let me give them to you very quickly. We're going to read through again Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. In verses 1 through 3, we will see the place of grace. The place of grace. That's the outline point. Place of grace. That is where it is found and the objects of God's grace as well as its necessity. That's verses 1 through 3. In verses 4 through 7, as we reread them, 
will gaze briefly upon the person of grace. So you have the place of grace, and now the person of grace. We're answering the question, who is the source of this grace? From where and whom does it flow? And then we'll come to verses 8 and 9. We will look at the actual provision of grace. The provision of grace. Grace as a gift to the undeserving and those who could never merit it on their own. And then verse 10, we'll look at the purpose of grace. That was pretty quick, so let me restate very briefly. We're looking at the place, the person, the provision, and ultimately the purpose of grace as the ground for our great salvation. So let's run through those now again very quickly. The place of grace, verses 1 through 3, answering the question, where is grace to be found? And the verses you saw began with, we are dead in trespasses in sin. Verse 1, as spiritually separated from God, let's say, as any dead man or woman is separated from their family members. Verses 2 to 3, you see, would make good material, would it not, for a Stephen King thriller. My friends and I were riding along Casey Key yesterday, looking at how the other half live, or the other three-fourths or something live, in those great mansions there along the beautiful Gulf. And I made the comment, I said, now, you know, that author of uh, scary books, Stephen King, has a home here. And we knocked on the door, he didn't answer, and it was just as well, probably. But um, he's a scary guy. You know what? Verses 2 and 3 would make a good plot for a Stephen King kind of scenario. We have here spiritually, spiritual zombies. In the first verse, we're told our condition is a dead one. And yet, we walk. What are the walking dead? In this case, these are people everywhere, still outside of God's salvation, spiritually dead, but walking around. And because of their spiritual condition, walking in ways that are everything opposed to everything that God is. They walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. They're under Satan's dominion, is what that is saying the spirit that's now working in sons of disobedience. And then Paul reminds us in verse 3, that was all of us. That was all of us until Calvary changed it all. So the place of grace, it is in a world of spiritual death, man totally separated from God, living under the power and dominion and bondage to Satan, and enters grace enters grace with the two words of verse 4, but God. I mean, there's another way of telling your story to someone else. (laughs) Tell them what you were. Tell them who you are apart from. Be honest. Tell your story. None of this holier-than-thou business, there's never any room for that because there's no place to boast. Tell people not that you are different from them, but that you are just like them. And if there's any difference at all, and hopefully they see it, 
Here's your two words, but God. And the wonderful thing about that is it takes the eyes off of you and immediately points them to him who is the author of salvation. I really can't take the time this morning to go much deeper, but verses like this that are so familiar to us, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourself, and so forth. The but God phrase here in the original Greek language is really quite incredible. Uh, It has to do with parts of speech called conjunctions and all of that. And before anybody goes to sleep by trying to explain that, let me just say there are other conjunctions besides the word but. There are words like and or if, which is kind of, you know, if this, then that. That's a conditional thing. When or because or though. These are all conjunctions. But this particular word, but... As in, but God, we are told by the linguists, is not what's called a subordinating conjunction. That is, it is not dependent on anything else. It is a conjunction. Here you go. Again, I don't want to lose you, but it means, this is a word that means there is a soul. That's where we get that word solo again. Unsubordinated. It doesn't connect with anything else. Conjunction is this word But, so at least get this much. In the original language that the Holy Spirit used to give Paul a beginning to verse 4, but God is a word that could be rendered quite literally. But God and God alone. It is not an and, it is not an if, it is God alone unsubordinated by anything else. God alone. That's what's meant by God's unconditional love. If any word or phrase has been more twisted among Christians, it's usually when they know they've sinned and then give a testimony and say, isn't it good that God's love is unconditional? That's the typical use. But the real doctrinal theological meaning in the phrase unconditional love means that God loves you no matter what, of all the good, of all the bad, regardless. That this is a love unsubordinated by you yourself. He chooses in himself to bestow. And why would he do it? And why would he start with us before we've even cleaned ourselves up? It's while we are still in our trespasses and sin. It's while we were yet dead, he calls and quickens. But God, why? Verse 4, being rich in mercy. So the person of grace under that portion of those hooks or outline that we've given you is, of course, God and God alone. And it is the grace that is found solus Christus. In Christ alone. You know, if some of you get nothing more after these five weeks, I hope you'll go in and out of these doors rejoicing, realizing, even though you can't restate it all in its intricacy, you'll come to believe with all your heart that salvation is of God and God alone, and that's the reason you've come to sing your praises yet another week. The provision of grace. Verses 8 and 9, very quickly, if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this, the phrase, that not of yourself. That's an exclusive phrase. 
that tells me that though I enjoy and rejoice in the forgiveness of my sins, and I can testify to you with certainty after these years, and with the biblical truth backing me up, I know I'm a child of God, but I know this as well, it is not of myself. It is the gift of God. You see, the gospel promotes, above all other virtues, the gospel is meant to promote in every believer something called humility. Humility. From time to time as a church family, you know, we even have disagreements with one another. Or sometimes part of a congregation can have disagreements with leadership in some of the decisions they're making. But you know, at the end of the day, there's always something to rejoice in, no matter how you've been stepped on here or there. That is that we're all here only because of the but God and that it's all from him, this provision of grace, this grace alone. The purpose of grace, you see it in verse 10, where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And then it says, for good works. This is the great misunderstanding today. How many people are still hopeful of heaven and trying to gain some sense of confidence by their confession of faith week in and week out is, well, you know, I really am a good person. You get that? I get that all the time. I really am a good person. Well, good for you. It has nothing to do with heaven and hell. Jesus is the only good person that counts on judgment day. Jesus is the only good person that counts on judgment day. I'll wrap myself in his righteousness. Thank you very much. Well, that doesn't mean I wrap myself in his righteousness and then go on vacation forever. He's called me, equipped me, I'm his workmanship, and it says, for good good works, not by good works. So how do we serve the Lord here at Good Shepherd Church? And how we serve him? It's just our way of expressing gratitude. Gratitude. It's not a have-to. If it were a have-to, it wouldn't be grace. We'd be earning something. It's gratitude. He saved me by his grace. How can I do less than give him my best? So Paul would say, by those mercies of God, what do you do? You present yourself a living sacrifice, not to earn salvation, but because you have it. And you obey him out of a spirit of gratitude. All that to say, I ask you before this table of the Lord to examine what is the foundation. What's your rock-solid truth? We've already heard what the world's believing, and they are way out there in left field when it comes to the true gospel. Are you trusting this morning, solus? Christus, in the grace of God alone, I'll continue to ask that question in one form or another with God's help every Lord's Day when we gather.